Hey everyone, welcome to Call Your Monster. My name is Jen. I am a writer living in Los Angeles. I'm Jewish and I dabble in the spooky. Hey everybody, my name is Adam. I am also a spooky Jew who writes in Los Angeles. Also have to say before we dive into it, because this is the most Jewish thing ever. Adam had an anxiety dream this week about his research for this podcast, which I think is delightful and just so Jewish. Okay, but here's the thing. There's like nine pages of notes on this, and I have a full-time job. Yeah, buckle up. (laughs) That was really aggressive. dive in today we're going to be talking about the big ones uh the three sort of the trio of primordial beings in jewish folklore we've got the leviathan the behemoth and little known third guy Ziz. so to start off let's talk about the leviathan he is basically a very scary giant snaky guy who lives under the sea in rabbinic literature which as we've talked about is sort of like fan fiction of the Bible and lots of commentary. Um, There's talk of the Leviathan as, yes, this monster on one hand, but also that word appears in Hebrew kind of in reference to a lot of different marine creatures. Some real, some mythical. This guy's basically all over the place and kind of hard to put your finger on, which I admire, you know, he's got layers to him. We do know across the board, he's associated with the sea, unlike those other two who we'll get to later. And the word Leviathan, I guess, in Hebrew, seems to stem from a Hebrew word meaning to coil, um, which sort of supports this idea that he's serpentine in appearance. It's also said that part of the word Leviathan, I think the Levi part, is supposed to connote joining. And according to the teachings of the Chabad rabbi Shnor Zalman, Leah named her third child with Jacob, Levi, because his birth joined Leah's husband to her. So Leviathan is kind of used interchangeably with other sea monsters in the Bible. Again, this is sort of a catch-all phrase. Some uses of the word Leviathan in the Bible probably refer to a whale, like the story of Jonah, if you're familiar. Another example is Psalms 104, 25-26, which says, So is this great and wide sea, where there are innumerable creeping things, living things, both great and small. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you have made to play in it. Now, just kind of like weird usage, if that's like a terrifying giant sea monster, so it's probably supposed to be a whale there. But due to this ambiguity, and because sometimes in the Bible it does actually refer to a scary sea monster, translators have sometimes left in the word leviathan instead of translating it to whale so that's why you might see that word appear quite a few times in the torah sometimes the leviathan is described as more dragon-like actually than what you or what i normally think of as a sea creature Um, in job 41 he is described as being fire breathing scaled with smoke pouring from his nostrils don't really understand how that works if he's underwater but I admire it. Maybe he's got some sort of, like, oil. I was thinking, very highbrow, thinking of Spongebob, how they somehow have fires burning underwater. So maybe he just, you know, it's all about what, you got to believe in the Leviathan. He's got to believe in himself, and then he can do anything. 
And what's more Jewish than struggling with self-respect? <laughs> yes. He's a, you know, we can learn a lot from Leviathan. Um, he's also a really big, really big guy. He causes the seas to churn. Sometimes he's even called the King of Beasts, which is quite the title, obviously. And he's, he's basically invincible. According to Job 26 and 29, swords don't hurt him. He can pretty much just lap them off. And according to the sages and in the Midrash, which is, again, basically this rabbinical commentary fan fiction of the Torah, uh, the Leviathans were the great beasts, Tanimim HaGedolim, that God created Ooh, on the look fifth at that day. I mean, I'm using transliteration. I am cheating a little bit, but I'm kind of proud of it. Um, so these guys were made on the fifth day. Originally, God made a male and female Leviathan, but because they were just so powerful and he didn't want them to multiply and destroy the world, God slew the female. It's always the female who <laughs> gets the, the short end of the stick. But, you know, she's still got her role to play. Her flesh is being preserved for this grand banquet at the end of days that's going to be given uh, once the Messiah comes. And, but while, you know, she was slain, the male in the meantime just gets to like roam the sea and do whatever the fuck he wants. This is just like an aquatic, like Lilith and Adam situation. Basically, this this story appears many times in many forms throughout Judaism and throughout every religion, probably. But okay, so in some versions of the tale, it is the female who's slain because sorry, the Le- Leviathans can't reproduce. But as with everything in Judaism, people can't seem to agree on how the Leviathan will die. So there's some debate as to whether or not you know. God slew the female and he's presenting her as part of this great feast. Some versions of the story say that there's a Leviathan and the archangels, Gabriel and Michael, slew it. Or in another version of the story, the Leviathan and the Behemoth just have this showdown, this fight to the death at the end of time, and both kind of end up dinner. So it's a lose-lose situation, but they definitely both go out with a bang. And in typical Jewish fashion, you know, the Leviathan is often used as a metaphor, according to the teachings of Chabad Rabbi Shnor Zalman, once again. This guy really likes the Leviathan. Um, he compares the Leviathan to Tzadikim, which are the most righteous of souls, because in the same way that marine life are enveloped and concealed by the sea, Tzadikim are enveloped by godliness. Okay, that feels like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean... It's an extrapolation, <laughs> to be clear, but I like the spirit of it. <laughs> but also, like, by that logic, we should be able to eat shrimp because they're holy, right? Yeah, wait a minute. No sushi should be off limits for us. <laughs> Come on, Rabbi Zalman. Get it together. I mean, that's what I'll use, I guess, to justify the fact that I'm a pescatarian who doesn't keep kosher. It's just like making me very godly, all of these shellfish that I'm eating. Blessed so... be the calamari. <laughs> yes. Second up of these great primordial beings, these elemental big boys, is the Behemoth. He's very similar to the Leviathan, but he's on land. Uh, he's also described at the end of the Book of Job. There, there's a lot, a lot of intense stuff comes to light in the Book of Job. So according to God in the Book of Job, the Behemoth bows to no one except for God. So the way he's described is... It's up to interpretation, as we'll get into. To me, he sounds a lot like a bull or an ox. He's said to eat grass like cattle. He's as strong as copper and iron. Uh, the strength of his tail and testicles are both described. And there's mention of like piercing his nostrils. 
So he could just be like a very edgy guy, but uh, sounds like a bull to me. The, I mean, how, how do you know about the strength of a bull's testicles? I don't know. Well, I guess it doesn't say they're strong. They're, they're described as being like very like tight and sinewy. I didn't want to go there, but... No, no, this is an explicit podcast. It was, <laughs> yes. The, the passage was pretty explicit. Um, God really wanted to just paint the full picture of this guy. He's a very strong boy. Another interpretation of the behemoth, it could just be the plural of the word behima, which usually referred to domesticated animals. So in that sense, behemoth could just be interpreted as the combined power of the animal world. And other, still other people believe that the behemoth might just be a hippo because he's a large, powerful animal, sleeps in the shade, spends his time in water. He does not give a fuck about the crazy waters of the Jordan, according to this passage. So he could very well be a hippo as well. But the Babylonian Talmud just kind of shrugs it off as, you know, the behemoth is basically unknown to man. We got no idea what this guy looks like. We'll deal with that when the Messianic era comes around. But the Babylonian Talmud does propose that this creature is so powerful that it was not allowed to interact with humans or like the Leviathan was not allowed to mate. And again, he's going to be part of that bomb feast at the end of days. So we got a big, if you're righteous enough, you got you got a surf and turf special waiting for you. Love that. <laughs> Honestly, you're making it sound really appealing to make it to the messianic age. I know. Like if you didn't, you know, you know, in Judaism, there's not the same like threat of fire and brimstone, but there's a really good incentive there to be good because I want to be part of that feast. I guess you'll get half of you'll get I can the have surf, the surf, the surf. And you know, if I make it to that point, maybe I'll have the turf too. All There's right. nothing in my diet that precludes me from eating behemoth. So that's, you know, you know what, that's respectable. There's only one of them. All right. So we talked about the Leviathan. We talked about the behemoth. Let's face it. That's kid stuff. Everybody has at least heard those names before. I am not impressed unless you know about Z's. And evidently, I myself am not that impressive because I also didn't know about Z's until very recently. No, no, you can't say that. You have to have the self-confidence yes. of a Leviathan. You're right. You're right. I do have to. I have to channel my inner Leviathan. I knew I knew about the Z's. I just, I just didn't know the details. And now I do. So last but certainly not least, we have our third biblical big boy who's actually a big girl. Definitely a big bird. The Z's is a monster of the air. So she is this... I'm just saying she because there are eggs involved, so I think it's a safe assumption, but I certainly don't want to misgender the Z's. We'll just say they. The Z's is a monster of the air. It's a giant griffin-like bird who rules the sky and, shocker, birds. Supposedly, the Z's wings were so massive that they could cover the sun and protect the earth from harsh winds. So the Z's is, unlike the other two, kind of seen as a benevolent being who actually cares about Earth's inhabitants. It's very nice of the Z's. And the Z's is, unlike the Leviathan and the Behemoth, supposed to be capable of reproduction. And maybe this is because the Z's is kind of a mensch. Uh, however, the Z's maybe shouldn't be entrusted with this because their eggs are so huge that they actually kind of pose a danger to people. And there are stories of the Z's eggs falling from the nest and flooding cities with like the goo inside. Okay, but wait, that could that could go so well with some behemoth and leviathan at the end of day's dinner. Yes, well, don't you worry because the Z's is going to be involved Incredible. at the end of days. Um, no omelets will be involved that I know of. I don't think the eggs are going to be involved, 
but Ziz is also going to be part of this very poppin' end times feast. And in case you were concerned about just how kashrut or kosher this end times feast is, according to Midrash Genesis Rabbah, the Ziz is apparently kosher. And Adam has already taste tested one for us. The first Ziz was apparently eaten by Adam in the Garden of Eden. The other one. Yes, first Adam, not Adam Rosenthal. Although, do tell me, if, if you have the chance to try Z's, I would be dying to know what it tastes like. I've had ostrich egg, and that's the closest I've ever come, and that was also overwhelming. And now we're going to get into Adam's brain exploded for the period of a week. So I'm going to talk about a lot of the uh, a lot of the different iterations of these primordial beasts. I'm going to go through them piece by piece. One thing that I want to talk about before I get into all of this is the concept of religious syncretization, which is basically how different religious practices absorb others or evolve into others. So. You know, the Mycenaeans existed, they had their own belief structure, then there were the Greek Dark Ages, and then all of a sudden the Greek pantheon as we know them appeared based on a lot of the earlier mythology. So Judaism came from Yahwehism, which came from another type of religion. So I think you're going to notice as I go through all of these, there's going to be a lot of similarities all the way through, and I think part of that will be a product of religious syncretization, and I think part of that is just going to be people worshipped the sea and worshipped the sky and you know people worshipped a lot of what they found around them and wanted to create these narratives rooted in those so getting right into it let's talk about leviathan and other versions of leviathan so in christianity uh they didn't necessarily see leviathan as this like primordial sea monster they saw it as another term for the devil the septuagint which is the oldest known greek translation of the tanakh which is as we know the collection of jewish learnings equates the Leviathan with a dragon, specifically a dragon in the book of Revelations. So as a result, the Leviathan becomes seen as the devil, battles God in the end of days, and later Christian scholars will call the Leviathan one of the princes of hell, specifically the demon associated with envy. And the artist's depiction of this vary from a whale, as we've discussed, or a hellmouth that swallows sinners to a steed for the Antichrist. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I have to stop down here just to say, I'm just picturing like a very scary whale, like surrounded by flame. I I just love that. Oh, I yeah. love this like hell whale. The hell whale is now going to be an excellent punk band name. <laughs> Absolutely. Is that or a weird name for a folk group? So from Christianity, there was this religious movement in the first century of the common era called Gnosticism. And they claim that the Leviathan is actually a deified version of the serpent from the Garden of Eden and is, in fact, a god of wisdom. And it's this world-circling, they call it the world soul in all of these Gnostic diagrams. And Gnosticism seemed to sort of go against a lot of the teachings of early Christianity. So anything that early Christianity said was bad, like Satan, uh, early Gnosticism said, no, 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 no. It's not, it's wisdom. It's not envy then there are the satanists who i'm going to be entirely honest i'm not sure if they grew out of gnosticism or grew separately um, but they see leviathan as this embodiment of the element of water so not super different from the way jews view them the greek mythology has a sheer bonkers number of sea creatures and sea monsters 
Cetus refers to a wide variety of these sea serpents, like the one defeated by Perseus to save Andromeda from her father who wanted to sacrifice her to a Cetus. But there are a couple of others, like Scylla was one of the two sea monsters who threatened Odysseus when he was on his return journey. And Scylla, much like some interpretations of Leviathan, had a bunch of different heads and was just a hungry lass she was. Uh, and then there was Charybdis, who was this daughter of Poseidon who fought against Zeus and was punished by having this unquenchable thirst for the sea and also was vaguely shapeless, which feels kind of similar to Leviathan being this hellmouth, but also just like this constant source of hunger, like the Sarlacc pit. So then there's, in Aztec mythology or Mexica mythology, there's Tlatecohutli, was this primordial sea goddess who was attacked and eventually dismembered by two other deities, who then ripped her head in two and tore off her limbs, and the two pieces of her head became heaven and earth, and the other deities made her skin all of the features of the world, like scales became grass, etc., etc., um, but again, this concept of this push and pull between sea goddess and the land and the earth. And because she was a little upset about all of this. Understandably. Yep. She was still very much alive when her head was ripped in two. And she was like, all right, I will continue to be both sea and land, but I'm going to need some human sacrifices to make up for it. I mean, I don't blame her. But one of the things that I sort of noticed when I was looking through all of these, you know, analogs of the Leviathan is... They all fall into this trend, or at least a lot of them fall into this trend called the Chaos Kampf, which is a sea monster or sea deity being smote by some sort of sky deity or a god of the storms or thunder or something like that. And there was this uh, British poet and historian named Robert Graves who claimed that it was indicative of the overthrow of the matriarchy by a patriarchal society or by a patriarchal hero. So you have, for example, Marduk versus Tiamat, which is in Mesopotamia. Marduk was this supreme deity and the storm god. Tiamat is a primordial sea deity and was the living embodiment of chaos who mated with Anzu, the god of groundwater, which is weird that groundwater is different from the sea. Like, I get it, but... Two water gods feels specific. Tiamat and Anzu getting together was partially responsible for the creation of the world by filling all of the void of space with these mythical waters. Um, and there's some debate over Tiamat's appearance, like was she a dragoness? Was she formless? Was she Skyla? Was she Charybdis? But that idea of this nebulous sea deity um, being smitten by Marduk, the supreme deity and storm god, you know, you see a bunch of different iterations of that as well with Zeus defeating Typhon, so Typhon had a hundred snake heads and in some version was a coil of snake tails uh, below the waist. And it was, Typhon was seen as this aggressively cruel deity, sort of similar to the Christian devil. But uh, he was defeated by, again, you know, Zeus, the storm god, like Lotan was defeated, like uh, Tiamat was defeated. And fun fact about Typhon before we shift away is uh he was Cerberus's dad and the Hydras so there is that concept of like the Hellmouth, like Cerberus being the guardian of the gates of hell and the Hydra being this multi-headed maybe not fire breathing but multi-headed hard to kill creature seems like that multi-headed gene is like very dominant if one of your parents has multiple heads you also will have multiple yes. heads and then to quickly go through the a uh, couple of the others in this Chaos Conf series, there's Thor and Jorgmunder, 
who is a world-circling aquatic Ouroboros. And then there's Indra and Vritra from the Hindu pantheon. Vritra is this male personification of drought who swallowed rivers and hoarded them and just sort of consumed them. And Indra was the supreme deity who smote Vritra and allowed the water to roll forth. Um, but I think one of the things that's really interesting is a lot of these um, older and still present religious beliefs are sort of rooted in this fear of both the water and fear of not having access to the water. And that feels very much why there is this primordial sense behind all of them. Like that's a very deeply rooted human fear of not having access to or drowning in the water. So fear of the Leviathan, I guess, and all of their forms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also just very, very human, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Too much water is bad, not enough is bad. They only had to worry about the behemoth, which is an excellent transition into other iterations of the behemoth. So, the Dictionnaire Infernal, which is a book by Jacques-Colin de Plancy uh, that breaks demons down into different hierarchies uh, in Christianity, refers to behemoth as... Uh, this giant elephant and is one of the principal demons in hell so that idea of the physicality being like a bull or an ox or possibly an elephant i've also seen some interpretations of like a brontosaurus which is real confusing but like maybe ancient jews found a brontosaurus skeleton and were like uh i want to eat this at the end of days but i want to fear this right now well yeah actually that would make it would make a lot of sense I am no archaeologist or anything of the sort, but I can imagine if anybody found anything pertaining to a dinosaur in ancient times, it would probably seem like a horrifying Like, where is this lurking? <laughs> yeah, that could only come from God. Well, then there's also that theory that Greeks came up with the concept of a cyclops because they saw an elephant skull. Oh. Yeah, because oh, an elephant skull yeah. just has that. The hole for the trunk. Yeah. Um, but going back to Behemoth. So uh, Behemoth could also be related to Bahamut, which is referenced in A Thousand and One Nights. Bahamut, in this case, is a giant fish that carries a bull, that carries an angel, that carries the world. And it's kind of similar to the world turtle of the Hindi pantheon called Akupara, the Chinese world turtle called Al, and then a bunch of different North American indigenous tribes believe in a world turtle as well. So associated with that idea of um, Behemoth being, you know, a giant elephant, but also a demon, there's the beasts of revelation. So they're physically not identical to Behemoth or Leviathan, but one comes from the earth and one comes from the sea. The sea monster has a bunch of heads and is associated with Satan. But the second beast, the beast of land isn't described physically apart from having two lamb horns. Maybe they're tusks like an elephant, or maybe they're just straight up horns. But the second beast is much more concerned. It's a false prophet. They're concerned with politics and economic and religious authority. So then uh, if you look up to the skies, you might see Zs, or you might see the Akkadian deity of Adad or Baal, which is the god of the sky and the storm. They were engaged in a battle with Yam, who's the god of the sea for supremacy. People from Acadia took Hadad or Adad to Egypt, where he became more closely identified as Horus. Now, Horus is much more physically similar to Zeus with a bird-like appearance, thanks to his falcon head. Um, and while Zeus blocked out the sun, Horus's eyes were actually said to contain both the sun and the moon. And again, 
Horus being a sky god, was frequently in combat with the Egyptian god Set, who was the god of the desert, so land deity. There's also a much closer association with Egyptian mythology to Z's, which is Bennu. And Bennu is this primordial bird deity that existed before creation and flew over Nun, which is the personification of the primordial sea, landed on a rock, and called forth creation. Um, so this is possibly rooted in, in the existence of these massive human-sized herons that died out in around the 1500s BCE, but these giant herons are also possibly the inspiration for the Greek phoenix, which That's is so super cool. cool. So this is that religious syncretization thing that I was talking about. Other deities similar to Zs is the Persian Simurg, um, which is a female giant-winged sky beast, sometimes with the face of a person or a dog, that was big enough to carry a whale and was capable of purifying the sea and the earth, so a fertility goddess. The Sumerians had Anzu, or Zu, because An was a prefix meaning god. So Anzu, or Zu, was a griffin-like, or at least bird hybrid deity born of both the earth and the sea. And later Sumer saw Lama, which was a winged goddess who was a mediating deity, who also appeared like a bird hybrid, um, though another name for her was Shedu, which is also possibly the origin for Jewish Shades, who we talked about a week ago, several weeks ago. Time means nothing. In Hindi, there's Garuda, which is a kite-like shaped demigod bird person and was the mount of Vishnu. And Garuda is closely linked to the charioteer of the sun god Surya. And in Buddhist texts, Garuda actually appears as a group of golden-winged birds and devours Nagas, which are human-snake hybrids. There's also Karura, which is possibly a derivative of Garuda, at least in terms of name, was considered the bane of dragons, so again, fighting this serpent-like creature, and had a human body with the wings and head of a bird, similar to Horus. There's also uh, Thunderbirds, which come from various Algonquin-speaking people. So in Algonquin mythology, it said that Thunderbird controlled the upper world, while the land of the dead was controlled by the great horned serpents who lived underwater. So the Ojibwe people uh, believed that Thunderbirds were created by the trickster god Nanabojo to fight those underwater serpents. In Mayan mythology, there's Vuku Kakwix, which is a bird god that pretended to be the sun and moon between the previous creation and this one. Um, so a lot of these, like, sky deities sort of seem to take the place of or interact directly with the sun and the moon which i think is really interesting and kind of makes sense because you can feel the ground you can dip your toes in the water and you can look up at the sky and those are the closest points of contact that you have besides clouds so there's also the storm gods in the yazidi religion tuasi melek was this primordial sky and sun god that looks like a phoenix and was the leader of the seven divine beings that operated under god and then there's the filipino mythical creature of the minokawa which is a giant bird that swallowed the moon before time ever started which the minute you start thinking about times before time that's when your brain just sort of yeah. evaporates so all of those were and are different deities and entities that existed throughout various religions but i also really want to get into pop culture iterations of them specifically pokemon i mean the highest of the highbrow yeah there are three legendary pokemon from the third generation uh, called groudon kyogre and rayquaza who are canonically based on the hebrew trio of primordial beasts Kyogre is this giant whale-like looking thing that expanded the oceans and even has a nobility called Primordial Sea. Can uh, confirm, uh, I had him in Pokemon Sapphire, I think. Yep, yep, that would be the one. 
I was a Pokemon Ruby, so here we go, with Groudon, who could expand continents and was constantly in conflict with Kyogre, which is also very silly because there's this moment in the game where you see the conflict and it's just Groudon on this tiny little bit of land and then the sea, and it's raining. At what point did Groudon go like, ah, this is a good plan? Yeah, just throw him a bone, Kyogre. Uh, and then sort of the mediary between these two is Rayquaza, which is this giant snake-like creature that is you know, a flying type Pokemon and was designed based on a Lindworm, which is a European monster or the Chinese dragon, depending on who you ask. I will say there are also, in earlier iterations of Pokemon, there are also elemental legendary Pokemon who are in conflict, but they're all birds, right? Yeah. Articuno. Zapdos and Moltres. (laughs) Definitely did not single-handedly get uh, Pokemon banned from my preschool classroom as a child. How did that happen? I got Pokemon cards banned for my second grade class. Oh my god. So strange. I was the most like well-behaved child. I really didn't like getting in trouble. But I had this period of time in preschool where my teacher was basically just like, hey, maybe don't talk about Pokemon all the time and bring Pokemon stuff all the time to class. And I just said no. You rebel. Okay, so uh, pulling off the Pokemon train. Um, Leviathan is referenced in a bunch of different texts and media. Uh, there's a mechanized guardian of the sunken city in Lost City of Atlantis, the Disney movie. There's also the concept of the Hellmouth in Buffy. There's So the use of the word Leviathan is also a descriptor for Moby Dick, which is really fascinating because of a very specific reason. The first Hebrew translation of Moby Dick took out the word Leviathan and replaced it with Tanin, which is the word for another type of sea monster, but one that more closely resembles a crocodile. Yeah, I actually did. I, I didn't mention this, but there are some people who theorize that the, Levi- the Leviathan was a crocodile and not snake-like. Bonkers. And then there's an extinct sperm whale species called L. Melvilli, which was named after the Leviathan and Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick. And its teeth were over a foot long which makes them the largest biting teeth ever recorded. That is the size of a dachshund. So scary. There's Falak from 1001 Nights. Falak was so evil that only its fear of God prevented it from eating all of creation, and God put actual hell in its mouth, again, a hell mouth, but actual hell in its mouth, but it also somehow resided in the seventh hell, which is very confusing for me. Can't think about it too much. Tartarus (laughs) is a place and a person. There's also the monsters from Supernatural, which are primordial entities that, again, seek to devour the world. The behemoth in pop culture is frequently used to reference massive oppressive regimes or governing bodies. Thomas Hobbes uh, wrote Behemoth about the Long Parliament, which is a period of British history that at this point we don't have time to go into. Um, He also wrote Leviathan. So Leviathan was about an ideal political world, whereas Behemoth was about every injustice possible as perpetrated by a government. There's also in the Master and Margarita, there's a character named uh, Behemoth, who is a giant black werecat who attends to Woland, who is essentially the Satan analog. So some people have theorized that the uh, the character Behemoth was named for Bergamoth, which is the Russian word for hippopotamus, but Bogokov himself said that Behemoth, who is this fast-talking demon who causes chaos and makes poorly timed jokes and waxes poetic, is actually named for Behemoth. There's also a 1959 B-movie that pictures the behemoth as a giant paleosaurus, um, and it's called The Giant Behemoth, and the tagline is, the biggest thing since creation, which is interesting to be given when behemoth is said to have been created. Right. Um, which is the third day of creation. Like, they're included in all of the beasts. Right, yeah. Leviathan. Had yes. to wait around for another two days. 
So there's a couple of things that seem like the big three, but aren't. There's the whale from Jonah and Monstro from Pinocchio. There's Aspidicolone, which is a massive whale found in early Christian texts, possibly related to this story from a Babylonian rabbi about his boat landing on what everybody thought was an island covered in grass, but was actually a giant whale. Hate when that happens. Yeah, classic tale. And then it's also that Aspidicolone was also possibly the whale island from Sinbad the Sailor, which there's a movie version of that, which is animated and also kind of troublesome because it does away with the whole rooted in Arabic culture and Muslim lore. There's also the Kraken, which is a Norse sea monster, but it's way too small scale and not a primordial deity. There's the British Knucker, who is a water dragon. There's the Persian Huma bird, which is kind of related to the Zs, but it's one of many. It's just very rare and respected and bestows happiness, but not necessarily this primordial massive entity that can block out the sun. Uh, Shinto has the Tengu, which is a has bird-like features, though it can sometimes be mixed with a monkey or a human with a kite-like body, but is more of a demonic entity. And then there's the rock, which is an Arabic mythical giant eagle, which is big enough to carry away an elephant. It's not divine, not big enough to be Aziz, uh, but it could have been based on embellishments of witnessing an eagle carrying away a lamb. Oh, one other Pokemon that we forgot to discuss is Ho-Oh, which is another Pokemon that was inspired by the Phoenix. So I think it's very interesting to me that all of these entities exist in all of these different cultures and all of these different the contemporary texts, contemporary books, contemporary movies, the fact that these giant world-conquering beasts exist. And it feels to me a little bit like humanity is constantly dwarfed by their surroundings. And there's this desire to maybe not humanize them, but make them into something a little bit more understandable. It's also easier when your fears are tangible, (laughs) obviously, when you can put a face to it or a big bird guy to it instead of just worrying, oh my god, why is it so dark out or why don't we have water? It's far easier if you can kind of pin it all on a, a big scary monster and it's sort of out of your control in that way. Yeah, and I will say one of the things that I think is really interesting is the fact that, at least in Judaism, they aren't fundamentally violent creatures, right? The Leviathan, the Behemoth, the Zs, they're all there, they're all present, but they aren't necessarily malicious or cruel. They're intimidating, but not violent. And I think that's a little bit of a departure from some of the other religious texts that we've seen that picture them as demons or things to be feared rather than revered. I I think it's interesting, this idea of inverting this fear we have of these giant primordial entities and consuming them. Well, uh, I think that wraps up. Thank you for listening to us ramble on about the predecessor to Earth, Wind, and Fire, Earth, Wind, and Sea. And we'll catch you guys next week when we talk about other monsters. Stay safe out there. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Call Your Monster. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe. If you have questions or have monsters that you want us to talk about, you can let us know in the Apple Podcast Rate and Review section or message us on Instagram at callyourmonsterpod, where we'll have a glossary of words we used this episode, as well as some almost funny memes. We'll see you next week.